Good morning, church. My name is Will, and I serve as a student pastor here at Perimeter Road Baptist Church. And this morning, it's my privilege, it's an honor to be able to stand before you and uh, preach the Word of God. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Hector, and thank you, Clint and Ralph and Kaylin. Appreciate you guys leading us in worship. Stand with me just for one moment longer and open your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to read this together. Uh, and forgive me, I did not look in the Pew Bible. There is a Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, you can use that. If you'd like, you can take it home. It makes a great resource. It is the living Word of God. It is active uh, to cut to the very core of our hearts. If you would like that Bible, uh, by all means, take it. It is Perimeter Road Baptist Church's gift to you. We're in Luke chapter 10. I wish I had looked up the page number in that Bible, but I did not. Uh, we're going to start in verse 25. And this morning, I'm going to try to go ahead now, before we even read the text, I'm just going to uh, pull back the curtain of the window and let you kind of get a glimpse of where we are going. And, and what I want to challenge you on in your thinking this morning as we dive into the study of the Word, what does your love for God look like today? What does your love for God look like today? Let's begin reading. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. As you're seated now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, help us to see that you are worthy of our deepest love. God, you are worthy of our thoughts. You are worthy of our strength. You are worthy of all that we can give you. God, you are worthy. Lord, we thank you for coming and rescuing us. We thank you for sending Christ to the cross to suffer and die in our place. We thank you for pouring your wrath out on him that we might believe and be saved. 
God, we thank you for meeting us here now in this place. We thank you for your holy word. God, I pray that you would use this time to teach us exactly what we need to know. Lord, help us to be the men and women you have saved us to be. And Father, for those who are not yet saved, I pray that your holy word would penetrate deep to the core of their spirit and it would raise them to life. That by grace, through faith, they would repent of their sin, confess Christ as king, and love you. Father, use me as your instrument. Lord, speak through me the words of life. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Again, I say good morning to you. My name is Will, and uh, for several months now, it seems, most of 2019, as I've been teaching students, the theme continues to come back to loving God. So whether it's the study of 1 John or looking at this same command in Matthew 22, the Lord continues to pound the drum in my heart, challenging me to let my love for the things of this world dim and fade away while continuing to allow him to grow and fan into flame my love for him. We've gone through numerous passages in our 229 student ministry, kind of unpacking how we are able to love God, what it means for God to love us, and what eternal life really is for those who follow Christ. There's going to be some challenging things this morning, and I think that's a good challenge. I think it's a good wrestling for us as we question and ask ourselves, am I really loving the Lord or Or am I believing in what the Bible says? Am I confessing what the Bible tells me to confess? Am I doing the things the Bible tells me to do, but not really loving God? And see, what I'm going to argue when it's all said and done is that the love for God undergirds salvation in the life of a believer. I love many things, and for those of you who have known me for a while, you probably know me well, and you know my interests and my hobbies. Uh, I love food. Uh, I know most of you do. And not to make you hungry before you've even decided where you're going to eat after church today, but I love all kinds of food. There's not too many food items that I turn away. In fact, there is an ongoing joke here on staff when it's time for us to pick a place that we will all go together. Uh, I will go to Royal Buffet and no one else on staff will join me. They turn their nose up at the royal delicacies at the royal buffet. I guess they don't want food poisoning. But no, I love lots of food. I love burgers, tacos, apple pie, bacon, and one of my favorites that I don't get too often would be pan-seared scallops. I love more than food. I love baseball, football, water skiing, hunting, and fishing. I love many things about our community. I love Titletown. I love Wintersville. I love that Claire and I met here. I love the university. I love the schools. I love the feeling of a job well done, especially when it comes to yard work. I love looking at my lawn and seeing what, to me at least, not maybe to Jake Peterman standards, but to me, I love seeing a well-manicured lawn. I love seeing those lines in the grass. Of course, I love my students. I love my job. I love my siblings, I love my parents, I love my kids, and I love my wife. 
Now, in saying that I love all of those things, we've kind of reached a cross, crossroads here. Because obviously, I don't love bacon the same way that I love my kids, right? I'm not going to charge into a burning building to save the bacon. But I hope that my courage is up to task for that building that is on fire housing my kids. You see, there's a different kind of love. And so when I say I love burgers and saying that I love boogie boarding and saying that I love my boy, Liam, that's all very different. And what we discover is that the English language somewhat lets us down with that term love. Maybe you love the color purple, maybe you love penguins, or maybe you love the Democratic Party. You may even love Bernie Sanders. All of that must, according to Christ, pale in comparison to the love we have for him. And so as we look at the original language of the New Testament, knowing that we're here in the Greek language, we see that the Greek gives us many terms for the word love. And maybe in hindsight, I should have given you a slide for this. But for example, we have the word eros, which is the love shared between a husband and a wife. Uh, you're familiar with the city of Philadelphia. Uh, philia is the, the term we, that the Greek uses for brotherly love. We have the word storge or, or sometimes pronounced storge. And so there you see like the familial love that a parent would have for their child. And then finally, we would say agape. Agape may be the purest form of love yet. And so we'll call that godly love, sacrificial love, a love that goes beyond mere feeling and a love that goes to action even if the feeling is not there. That's agape love. And so when we see this greatest commandment that Jesus gives, yes, we are here in the book of Luke. It's also found in the book of Mark. It's also found in the book of Matthew. Every single time on every instance that Christ says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, he's using the term agape. Agape. Remember, agape is a godly love, a sacrificial love that even surpasses feelings. So now we've come to the question, and I want to ask you, how does my love for God compare to my love for worldly things? How does my love for God compare to my love for worldly things? Or how does my love for God compare to my love for people? How does my love for God, perhaps this is the most interesting question of all, how does my love for God compare to my love for myself? As we've been unpacking this in our student ministry, we have acknowledged that this realm, this world, has many things that pull at us. This world has many things reaching out to us, demanding our love. Often, we sometimes feel like we are mosquitoes at night drawn to a bug zapper. We see this beautiful light and we cannot help ourselves. We gravitate towards it, thinking that light is going to satisfy us, only to realize through a painful zap that we've been made for something more. I've discovered myself that there are things that I think are going to bring me happiness. I think there are things in life that are going to make me content. Maybe it's a college degree, or maybe it's a job title, or maybe it's a possession like a vehicle or a home, or maybe it's bringing children into your family. None of those things are bad. In fact, I would say all of those are good things sent from the Father above. But do we love those more than the gift giver himself? 
You see, the heart is a fickle thing. The heart is a strange thing. The heart is a curious thing. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's just it, isn't it? Sometimes we cannot even control the affections of our heart. We know that we should be loving God, Yet with all of these voices crying for the attention of our heart, we give our affection, we give our strength, we give our mind, we give our energy to almost everything and anything else except God. Love is a tricky thing. Love can bewilder the mind. It seems irrational and often, as we said, takes us places that we feel like we are not in control of. Are we in control of love? Are you in control of what you love? That's a good question. Thank you for asking. So here is the tension. We as humans can't turn love on and off the same way that we flip a light switch on and off. Love is not exactly the result of a formula. We don't have three big steps that if we follow those three steps to a T, we will then begin to love something. You think I'm crazy. And I would say, you're right, but maybe follow with me on this at least, because although I'm crazy in some other areas, I think I'm onto something here. If I were to give Troy Crow three steps for how to love the Georgia Bulldogs, I don't care how much he follows those three steps, he's not going to do it. No person has the power to make you love the mountains, the beach, or the lake. No person has the power to make you love a particular piece of art that is hanging on the wall. Multiple people may watch the same sunset or they may all see the same sunrise, but they're not all going to have the same feelings about the same sunrise. Hear me out on this. As parents, believe me when I say we have tried very much so to make our children love broccoli and love bedtime. It's not happening. Here's a good question. How can an all-knowing God who understands the human heart better than we know it ourselves give us the command to love him with all that we have, with all that we are? How? How can God command us knowing the intricacies of the human heart, pinning down the words that we just read in Jeremiah chapter 17, that the heart is deceitful. How can he command? And not just any old command, but as Christ said, the greatest command. How can God give us the command to control our hearts? Here's how he can do it because he is an all loving God. It's no coincidence here that in Luke chapter 10, Christ teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan. He does this to help us see love. He does this to help us understand his love for us. We've got to follow along closely. I think we would do well to learn that one of the greatest litmus tests we can ask ourselves for whether or not we are truly loving God is how are we loving others? Are we loving others the way that we love ourselves? And I'll take a side note here and I'll say, listen, when you embrace the love God has for you, 
you love yourself in a completely different way. This doesn't mean you puff yourself up with pride. This doesn't mean that you put yourself on another level. This doesn't mean that you walk all the time with your shoulders back and your chin up because you think you're better than other people. When you love yourself the way that God loves you, you realize that Christ gave his life for you and you start to understand the commands to walk humbly with him. You start to see that his blood was not just shed for you, but it was shed for all of God's people. And therefore you have a commission to go and make disciples for others. And what I've been challenging my students with is this, one of the greatest ways, if not the greatest way to show love for other people is to boldly and passionately and regularly share the gospel with your words, kindly and compassionately, with mercy to those around you because you love them with the same kind of love that God loves you with, which says, suffer not that you enter into eternal damnation. I'll give my life for you to be saved. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. So as we look at the parable of the good Samaritan, is this what we see? Christ says, if we love God, we will love our neighbor. Doesn't say if you love God, you should love your neighbor. If you love God, you might love your neighbor. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. What is the best example of loving our neighbor as ourself? This is the heart of what this lawyer was asking. And so now we get into the parable. And in this parable, at the very end, he asked the lawyer the question, which one? Was it the, the priest, was it the Levite, or was it the Samaritan that showed love? And the guy responded, the one who had compassion. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. The reason is because the Samaritan acts with godly love. It was not the priest who acted in love. And by the way, as Jesus is telling this story, I wonder if there is, in fact, a priest in the audience listening to this maybe feeling convicted that his own actions have not measured up to the words that he teaches about Yahweh, knowing that he knows the law really well, similar to the Levite, they know the law, they understand the Torah, they get the Old Testament, but maybe as the tape recorder in their mind flashes back some of their memories, they realize that they have not acted compassionately or mercifully to those in their life. You see, Christ makes it abundantly clear that it's not the obvious people who came to the person's rescue, but it was the least likely of all heroes. It must not be only with talk that we as the people of God show compassion. We must go beyond mere words. We can talk compassion, we can talk mercy, we can talk love all we want. But until we get down into the ditch, rubbing elbows, being the hands and the feet and the knees of Christ, we are not actually a loving church. We must not become a church who is known for having the best theology while being lazy in our compassion. Let me repeat that. We must not become a church who is known for having the best theology while being lazy in our compassion. You see, Jesus spotlights the Samaritan. The Samaritan was not the one who the listeners expected to be the hero of the story. 
The Samaritan was the uh, religious outcast. He was the one who maybe didn't wash his hands before he ate. He was the one who maybe didn't go to uh, the temple and send up prayers regularly to Yahweh. He was the one who was on the outskirts of religious society, if you will. But he was the one who acted in a godly manner. You see, this would be like a wildcat paying for a Viking to go to a Peyton Manning training camp. Not who you expect. This would be like a Republican paying for a Democrat to run on the presidential ballot. Not who you expect. The Samaritan was despised by the Pharisees. If you go back into the Old Testament, you understand why. Because during uh, the the time when Jews were uh, in in captivity, uh, they they were uh, interbreeding with people who were not of Jewish descent. And so they became known as essentially half-breeds. And the Jews frowned upon this because they began to worship things other than Yahweh. And so now fast forward some 1,000 years and what you see is the Jews still hold contempt in their hearts for Samaritans. But what we do well to learn is that Christ shows, he sees past outward appearances. He sees to the heart and he knows that character, true character flows from our hearts. So my question is, are you allowing your title As a Christian, are you allowing your title as a believer of God? Are you allowing your membership at a local church to carry the weight of your compassion? Or are you allowing the love of God to flow through you so that your actions carry your compassion? There is a difference. May we not be known as a people who only speak of love but would be a people who show love. As I was preparing this week, uh, the Lord used uh, a personal example in my life to really slap me across the face with an application. Thursday, we had a flag football game uh, for six, seven, and eight-year-olds. You know, small town football is a big time thing, right? And so my son is on the flag football squad and uh, it hasn't been the the easiest year for us. We haven't uh, won all the games that we've played. In fact, we've been on the losing end most of the side and it's pretty lopsided losses that we've had. So this Thursday, we're in a close back and forth flag football game and all the boys are uh, giving their very best and they're sweating from top to bottom, just like all of us sitting on the sidelines. And, and so I'm on the sideline uh, helping transition which players need to go in and which players need to go out. And after halftime, close to the end of the game, uh, we are winning by a margin of two points. It's very, very close. And we're just holding on uh, for dear life. And so Liam is out on the field and he's playing defense. We're trying to stop the other team from scoring. I know that sounds repetitive, but just in case there aren't many football fans in here, uh, he, defense tries to stop the other team from scoring. Okay, so he's not reaching for flags and he's not tackling anyone. Um, two plays back to back, he just got, uh, I think the, the proper term would be roughed up. I think I'll just say roughed up. So there's this kid who's probably a year younger than him and a foot taller than him on the other side. And uh, Liam is trying to get around him and pull a flag. And that kid grabs him uh, from the collar behind and just snatches him down and throws him down. And I'm just, you know, awestruck, like, where's the flag? Where's the flag on this? That should be a penalty. No flag is thrown. So I'm like, okay, all right, I'll say something to the official. Just, you know, make sure you catch that next time. I don't want that to keep happening. 
It's my pride and joy out there. I've got so much of my identity wrapped up in his performance, okay, official? And so the very next play, um, I kid you not, I think, I think Liam was trying to be a little bit tougher, uh, but this kid literally just bear hugged him and fell on top of him. And so he's down on the ground and the, the kid just lays on him for what seems like an eternity. This is not an exaggeration. It was at least 10 seconds. And so Liam looks over at the sideline at me like, where are you at, dad? And I'm like, I can't do anything. That, that would be me breaking the rules. Uh, and so he gets really frustrated and really upset. And I think he felt a little helpless in that moment. So when the kid finally got off, to, off of uh, top of him, he comes over to the sideline and I just want you to know how holy your student pastor is because I got down on his level and I'm looking at him in his eyes and I'm trying to give him one of those God and country talks, right? This, you're you're going to do this, Liam, you're tough. You're, and so I tell him in a humble, godly, Christian manner, Liam, if that kid does that again, you knock his block off. <laughs> Not my most godly moment. I'm sorry it, it came out. So, so Liam goes back out on the field, and by this time, uh, the ball has switched possession. He is on offense, and now uh, that kid is still lined up against him, but he's trying to tackle our team, right? And so uh, Liam is lined up against him, and right off the snap, he blocks this kid and blocks him all the way to the ground, and Liam is still standing up. And I'm just like, yes, I'm a proud dad. That is so gratifying for me. Way to go, son. And they finally blow the whistle. The play is over. And my moment of gratification ended when Liam stuck his hand down and picked him back up. And now I'm flooded with humility because he showed kindness. He didn't worry about what had been done to him. He didn't worry about what his uh, godly father was telling him from the sideline. So thank you, Claire, for mothering our kids the right way. Thank you, Janet, our children's director, for teaching godly lessons to our kids. What would you have done? What do you do when that coworker of yours continues to be like sandpaper, and just grates against your flesh, and you finally have the upper hand and you wanna rub their nose in it, or do you bend down and pull them up? You see, when we look at being good Samaritans, we realize that our pride gets in the way. That this old flesh that we're wearing day in and day out has a tendency to push the love of God out of our lives and let the pride of life fill us up. I think the good Samaritan looks like the, uh, the pastoral figure in the play Les Miserables, where he takes in the beggar, the beggar steals his valuables, the, the beggar uh, breaks out of his house and he's caught by the police and the police go back to the pastor and say, did this man steal from you? And that pastoral figure lets him off out of compassion. Or, or maybe you as an employee, you have a harsh boss, it's someone that's really difficult for you to work with, but you continue to be a faithful employee, working your job, showing love to those around you, even showing mercy to your boss. I think of this new movie that's come out about Harriet Tubman and how she was able to escape, but because she loved others, she continued to return back and set people free time and time again, risking her own neck. I think of Lottie Moon, who essentially starved herself to death, making sure that those under her care, as she was sharing the gospel, being a missionary in a foreign land, she was giving them food until the point where she starved to death. I think of foster parents, 
foster parents who bring in neglected children, knowing that in a few months or, or a year or longer, there's gonna be some heartache. They're, they're gonna be emotionally and spiritually ripped apart as that child is hopefully and prayerfully reunited with the biological family. Those foster parents walk into that battle knowing what's at stake, yet they do it time and again because they love someone who has been neglected. I think of Stephen the martyr in the book of Acts. As he's being pelted with rocks to the point of death, he cries out with his last last breath saying, Father, forgive them because he knows that they need Christ more than anything else. So we repeat Christ's command, love your neighbor as yourself, even if it hurts, even if it costs. Love even if it seems illogical or counter-cultural. Why? We are to act in love towards our neighbors, not just family, friends, or acquaintances, precisely because this is what God does for us. This is what God does for us. He doesn't keep tally. He doesn't create a scoreboard. He says, I love this person because they are desperately starving for my love. If God doesn't step in, we are done. But God inclines himself to us. He reaches into our lives and saves us. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two summers ago, uh, the students and I went to Birmingham, Alabama, and there we participated in the Motion Student Conference. And it was there during one of the speaker sessions where I think I first began to see the parable of the Good Samaritan, the way that I think God wants us to see it. Pastor Rich Wilkerson was, as far as I can remember, the first person to help me see Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the good Samaritan. You see, from a Jewish perspective, he would have been the least likely of all heroes. He would have been fully God and fully man, but that was denied of him from his Jewish counterparts. The Pharisees would have never regarded Jesus as any sort of hero, much less one to save people from the ditch of death. However, When we see Christ as the good Samaritan, we are seeing the parable as it was meant to be seen. He is the one. He is not just another priest. He is not just another Levite. He is not just another person who offers wise words. He is not some religious system that says, do good things and God will be happy. He is a God who says, you can never do enough things to make me happy, so I will come down and save you. He doesn't just get us out of the ditch. He raises us from the grave. And the price that he pays is more than two denarii. He paid with three days in the tomb after his body was beaten and bloodied on the cross. He saves us, not just from laying half dead in the ditch, but he saves us from eternal wrath that we deserve because we have grossly sinned against a holy God. So we must wake up to this spiritual truth. We must wake up and see that we have in fact been rescued from death to life. And this makes us want to go to the innkeeper and say, who paid the price for me? Who bandaged me up? Who saved me? Christ the King. Christ the King has saved us. 
Now, what do we do? How do we apply this news of salvation? How do we apply this reality that we were dead in a ditch, but now we have been saved? Well, when we hear and learn and understand and believe that it is Christ, we want to follow him. We say our life is no longer our own. Now it belongs to Christ. And so we look at passages like 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or 1 John chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 19. We love because he first loved us. These are matters of salvation. God is able to command us to love because he loves us. And when he loves us, that ignites a wellspring of affection towards him, of adoration towards him, of allegiance towards him. He is worthy because he has saved us. We don't love him because we have to. We love him because we get to. What about confession and what about belief and what about obedience? I thought that my salvation was tied up in those things. Are, are not confession, belief, and obedience the foundations of salvation? And I'm gonna say, yes, yes, they are. These are foundations of salvation. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me, right? And then in Romans chapter 10, it says that if we believe in our hearts and confess them with our mouth, you see, there's that root of love there. And so what I'll say is we are saved by grace through faith. And so long as our confession and our belief and our actions are the result of a genuine love for God, then yes, of course, these are uh, the, the foundation of salvation. The reason God is able to command love is because he is running us over with the freight train of grace. He is opening our eyes up to the spiritual reality that love for him undergirds all of salvation. Consider Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, this text shows us that even those who know the name of Christ and speak the name of Christ and uh, uh, do things in the name of Christ may not be saved. Just me, maybe like an attorney who stands up on behalf of his client and says many good things about his client, many true things about his client. That doesn't mean he loves his client. Or let us look further at Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly you appear beautiful. You look great on the outside, but within you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, it wasn't necessarily the actions of the Pharisees that was unfit. Rather, it was their unchanged hearts. They did the right things with the wrong motives. I think of the 19th century in one of our nation's greatest scars as men oppressed slaves and sure, those slaves obeyed. They did what was asked of them. For fear of life and limb, they did what their taskmasters told them to do. They did not love their slave owners. They did not love their oppressor. Do we love God and obey out of love? James chapter two, verse 19 tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Look, I believe that kale and spinach is a primarily good food. Doesn't mean I love it. So maybe think about this this Venn diagram where you've got these three circles and they all overlap and right in the middle you have this one uh, sweet spot right in the middle. And so one circle would be uh, belief and one circle would be confession and then uh, one person, uh, one circle, let's see, what's my other one here? Uh, One person, one circle would be belief, one circle would be confession and one circle would be obedience. Okay, they're all somewhat independent, but then they overlap as a Venn diagram. And right in the middle, what undergirds all of those? Love for God. Love for God. Do I want us to obey? Man, I want to obey. I want my wife and kids to obey God. But I don't want them to miss God. And see, when they love God, when they love him, because of all that he's done for them, they will They will obey. They will honor him. They will glorify him. Their actions will represent their love for him. They will confess him. They will believe in him. And I want us to think better things about God. I want us to confess better things about God. I want us to do the things that God has saved us to do because we love him. Let us love God for all he is, for all he does, for all he promises. It must all be a result of genuine love for Christ. So as we begin to land this plane, I'm gonna ask you, do you see, do you see deep in your spirit more than an intellectual affirmation that God is worthy of your love? He is the good Samaritan. He compels us to follow in his footsteps as he has saved us from spiritual bankruptcy. Would we love him? And would our lives echo all that he is? Maybe we would pray a prayer like this. God, help me love you more than I love anyone or anything else in this world. Especially those people or things that pull me away from you. Help me love others as you have loved me. I want all of us confessing God more with our words. I want all of us obeying God more in our actions. And I want all of us believing God more in our minds. Would this be a result? Would this be the overflow of the love that we have for him? We're going to pray. Just have a time of response. Maybe some thought-provoking questions you ask yourself would be along the lines of God, Reveal the things in my heart that ought not be. God, in what way do my actions show that I love other things or other people or even myself more than I'm loving you? God, would you help me to be a man of God, a woman of God who is known not just by what I say, but what I do because of my love for you? But we give God the affections of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, help us to love you. Continue to pound the gospel. Continue to keep the gospel before our eyes. Continue to show us your love. Lord, and in doing so, growing our love back for you. 
Lord, I pray for myself as a husband, as a father, as a student pastor. God, that I would treat everyone in my life with love, with compassion, with mercy. Lord, thank you for showing me love. Thank you for coming and rescuing me, giving me life, raising me from the grave. Now, Father, let me echo that love to everyone around me. God, I pray for our church. Lord, I pray that as you continue to bless here, as we continue to hear the gospel and understand the gospel and grow in our knowledge, grow in our faith in you, Lord, that you would help us to grow in our love for you. Lord, may that be clear in how we go about our day-to-day business. May that be clear in how we live behind the closed doors of our homes. May that be clear in how we uh, go to our jobs each and every day. May that be clear in how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters inside this local body. May that be clear in how we evangelize. Well, we thank you. We repent of all the ways that we have loved other things and other people and even ourselves more than how we have loved you. Thank you for your patience and your compassion and your mercy. Thank you most of all for Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.